0: Welcome to the 24-week lecture series by Dr. Avraham Giliati: Dreams, visions, and near-death experiences compared to the end-time prophecy of Isaiah. This is Lecture 2, Redemptive Suffering. Uh, last week we had the bad news. <laughs> right? You all felt the bad news. Another caution, leave judgment alone. It's not about that. Just let it be the way it is. It's all part of the Lord's plan. And as far as judging others, just totally let that go. And this, this week we're going to have the good news. because There's always bad news and good news, and there's curses and blessings. And this time we're going to discuss some really positive things. We're going to discuss redemptive suffering and the role of suffering in people's lives and the lives of the saints. The Catholics pray to saints because the saints have suffered and been afflicted and become purified and sanctified, and they're able to do miracles that are attributed to them. And that is indeed a true pattern, except for praying to the saint. That's not a true pattern. And Spencer has seen the role of suffering on a number of levels, and we're going to uh, delve into a little bit of Visions of Glory, that book, to see how it ties in with Isaiah. He says, I was shown this great friend and servant of God who was an apostle as probably all well known, to, well known to all of you in an intercessory prayer with Father regarding himself and what he would experience in the future. Because he was undergoing extreme afflictions and trials at that time of his life and was begun to die shortly. And so he was pleading for the will of the Father to take place in his behalf and his family, and that he would be able to endure it well and would be empowered to drink the bitter cup without becoming bitter himself. I guess when you use language like that, you kind of know who that is from his talks in general conference. These are the words I heard him speak as he poured out his heart in prayer. It was confusing to go from seeing the debauchery of Tahiti's past to this sacred scene of suffering and righteous acceptance of the Lord's will. But of course that was all given to him, specifically to be a contrast, showing the extremes of wickedness on the one hand, which was delving into satanic cult, and that satanic cult was had among the Nephites, as well as the people in Tahiti, and probably throughout the Pacific Islands at that time, among all the descendants of Lehi. I now believe the stark contrast was to teach me how suffering could actually sanctify and bring about exaltation when the sufferer submits to Christ and lets that suffering purify and complete their mortal experience. Now Paul talks about suffering and we're going to you know, quote from Paul in a minute. But this really expresses it so well. The purifying and sanctifying effect that suffering can have upon each of us individually As Joseph Smith was taught in Liberty Jail, if thou bear it well, great things can come out of it. Great things. Not just your own personal things, but for your family, your extended family, for your descendants, for the good of the kingdom. I was watching my friend begin his journey into the suffering. He was not praying for escape, but for strength to endure it well. I learned by all this that it is through suffering that mortals learn compassion and endurance and faithfulness. Because suffering can be a hell, it is hell, but in Isaiah that corresponds to a descent phase that anyone who wants to ascend to a higher spiritual level has to go through in order to experience that kind of rebirth on a higher spiritual level in order to be recreated closer to God's image and likeness. I understood that I would also be called to suffer so that I too could be purified, completed and Christ-like when I left mortality. And I had to submit to this process willingly. This is what the angel meant when he told me, I will show you that which must surely come to pass. He was saying, you will suffer and you will successfully submit and thereby be purified. So this is the mystery of suffering of which Christ was the great exemplar of which Joseph Smith was also an exemplar. Suffering is for our good. It can be for our good if we endure it well. If we submit to it willingly, then suddenly it takes on a whole new dynamic and actually helps build the kingdom in you, first of all, and through you to others because suffering ultimately will empower you. Rising above suffering will empower you to the degree that wherever the adversity is coming from, you will have power over that adversity and over those adversaries who are giving you grief. Let's go to the next phase. Well, let's, let's look at Romans, what Paul says. Romans 8, 16 through 21. The Spirit itself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And sometimes in Hebrew, well, in Hebrew, children and sons is the same unless you say daughters specifically, and the feminine, then the masculine children can also, is, is, is sons. so sons and daughters, both. But, but the masculine is used to cover both the masculine and feminine, if it's in plural. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with, Jesus, with Christ, if it so be that we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. Because, We can say, well, we're heirs with Christ and we're joint heirs with Him. Well, baloney, unless you are willing to go through the same process of suffering and emulate Him in that suffering. Otherwise, it's just a pipe dream. You're kidding yourself. You cannot just lay claim to all these wonderful blessings and expect them simply to happen to you because you're good. You don't do anybody any harm or because you're a member of the church, or because you fulfill all your callings, it goes way beyond that. This kind of airship with Christ goes way beyond to being valued in the testimony of Jesus and really putting yourself out there in the world in the way that Spencer sees that he eventually is put out there And fulfilling his role as a proxy savior to others, which we're going to discuss today. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time aren't worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed in us. It's like a mathematical equation. You put in this, and this comes out. But what comes out is going to be way more glorious than what we suppose. The little that we put in is like a bank account. It pays dividends, interest, multiple interest. For the earnest expectation of the creature that's an interesting language waits for the manifestation of the sons of God. The earnest expectation of the creature to me it's a way of saying the carnal man you've got the carnal man versus the tug of war between the carnal man and and becoming a son or daughter of God. It's a constant tug of war. It never stops until the next phase of life. The whole purpose of our creation is that we may become sons and daughters of God. Not just sons and daughters of Christ when we enter the waters of baptism, but sons and daughters of our Father in Heaven and our mothers in Heaven on that higher level that they are on so that we may inherit all that the Father has. Like the nine Nephites who went to Jesus' kingdom and the three Nephites who entered the father's kingdom, where they had a fullness of joy, there's a difference, there's a whole world of difference, between salvation and exaltation, and between different degrees of exaltation, all the twelve were exalted, but on different levels, depending on how much you put in, or how much you were willing to bear for Christ's sake and serve in his kingdom and fulfill the Father's will for you in all things. For the creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but because of mortality, but by reason of him who has subjected the same in hope. Subjected the creature in hope. The carnal man is subjected in the spirit, by the spirit, by our spirits, imbued with the spirit of God. So therein lies a hope that we can rise above the carnal and ascend to the spiritual, so that the spiritual in us can win over the carnal, and so that we become as a whole person spiritual. Because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. So by becoming purified and sanctified through suffering, our, spirit, our bodies are able to rise and ascend and vibrate on the level of our spirits." That glorious liberty of the children or the sons of God on that high level. Timothy. Second 2 Timothy 2, two ten through twelve. I endure all things for the elect's sake, so that they also may obtain salvation, which is in Jesus Christ, with eternal glory, salvation and exaltation, not just salvation. Is a faithful saying that if we be dead with him, we also shall live with him. You mean we all have to die? Yes, we'll all die at some point, but dead to what? Dead to ourselves, dead to our self-will, dead to our carnal nature. That has to die, and the way it dies is by the spiritual rising above the carnal. If we suffer with him, we also shall reign with him, but not without that suffering. We can't just say, well, we ordain kings and queens in the house of Israel. Now, only if we rise up to the level of kings and queens in the house of Israel, which there's a whole theology behind that for us to get to that point. And we'll discuss some of that today. Then we'll reign with him. But if we deny him, how? Well, denying the suffering that we have to go through in order to attain that. That's denying him that he's willing to offer us that. Then we're saying, well, no, we're quite happy to be where we are, and and that's a lower level. If you want to be there, fine, nobody's stopping you. But to get where he is, to inherit all that the Father has, to inherit his kingdom, we really have to go all the way with Christ. And we read a scripture last week out of 2 Nephi 28, at the end of the chapter, after the seven curses or woes that are pronounced upon us in Zion, we, are, we do indeed deny him, or many of us, of our people, deny him, end up denying him. Not willing to go through this trial, through the descent phase, so that we can rise higher than we are, above where we are. Through an ascent phase. Romans 8, 28-30. We know that all things work together for good. You know, that's why you can say it's all good. You can always keep saying it's all good. It's a paradox of life. That our trials and adversities and challenges are all good. Even in the midst of the hell, as we're crying out in torment, it's all good. And we'll see King Hezekiah in a minute. How he went through that and became a savior of his people. And without that, he would not have become a savior of his people. All things work together for good for those who love God. And what did Jesus say? If you love me, what? Keep my commandments. which is the law of God. The law or the terms of the covenant. For those who are called according to his purposes. For those whom he foreknew, he also foreordained to be conformed to the image of his Son. If we were already in the image of God, which is uh, you asked last week, what is some of the precepts of men that we discussed in Second Nephi 28? Well, there's one. We're all created in the image and likeness of God. Well, not quite the way Genesis defines it, because Genesis defines Adam and Eve as created in the image and likeness of God. And the book of Moses defines the brother of Jared as created in the image and likeness of God. Because they had reached a certain spiritual level where indeed they were in the image and likeness of God, the Father. If we were already in the image of his Son, why do we need to go through all this in order to conform to the image of his Son? That he might be the firstborn among many brethren, joint heirs with him, in other words. Because he is an heir of the Father's glory. Moreover, those whom he foreordained, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And we see in Visions of Glory how it's all on one continuum. That eternity is all one continuum with God. It's all experienced, as it were, instantaneously, all concurrently. And Spencer talks about being foreordained to his calling and that all of us who have these roles to perform in the end time have been foreordained to those roles. My vision changed. I saw that my friend was in the same position beside the same bed where he was praying. The only thing that had changed was that the rug under his knees appeared to be a sheepskin rug. Okay, but we know this is a different scene, in other words. This time, I was astonished to realize that he was pleading for me in my behalf. Remember Enos praying for himself and then for the Nephites and then for the Lamanites? So you always start with yourself, like on the plane. First put the oxygen mask on yourself and then on your children, right? So, so it is here with salvation. For what I was going to be going through, which he intuitively knew, or maybe through his own experiences knew, that somebody like Spencer who has that kind of vision is going to get horrendous opposition. And he's told me, like, like people say, who do you think you are? And he says, I don't think I'm anybody. In fact, he's the one most surprised at those things that he saw about himself. He was speaking in the same fashion as before, but pleading this time for me, and he was weeping. And that tells you, you know, the depth of his empathy for Spencer. Here he meets a soul with whom he immediately has a kinship, a brother in eternity, so to speak, a brother in Christ, and he's willing to do anything for this person so that his mission might succeed, not just his own. Keep that in mind, because that is what Paul meant when he said, for the sake of my brethren, I endure all things. It's for the sake of others at a certain point that you reach that it's not about yourself anymore. It's all about what you can do for others. Emulating Christ what he did for others. Both of these prayers were long, protracted, and beautiful pleadings with Father. Notice that familiarity with his relationship with the Father. The Father kind of puts him out there somewhere at a distance, but Father is immediate. Abba, Father. The Hebrew is Abba. His words overwhelmed me. I felt deep concern that I was somehow creating this pain and struggle in my friend. I was also confused and troubled that he had seen something of my future struggles, which obviously worried him in my behalf. I had no idea what future struggles he knew awaited me. It's like when somebody gives you a gift like Spencer's vision, when God gives it to you, I mean, you know all hell is going to break loose on somebody like that. It never fails. And it's all good. But we're not alone in this world. We've been put in different spiritual positions, as the apostle was. And he has a stewardship over others, over people in the church. And he embraces that stewardship to the full. And he's willing to pay a price for that person to succeed that he too might succeed. That is the role of a proxy savior and Isaiah is full of it. That's where each of us needs to be heading if we're going to be exalted in the celestial kingdom. Without that, you'll never be exalted in in any celestial kingdom. I ask my father in mighty prayer, please bless this man that if it be possible, he might not have to endure these things on my account. The same as Christ pleaded, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. But thy will be done, not mine. It's always the proper thing to pray for that, that somebody, including yourself, But if there's no other way, then you go through it. And I pled to know, what have I done? What has happened to me to cause my friend this struggle on my behalf? Why am I seeing this? Please help me to learn what I must learn from this well, he was learning what it means to become a proxy savior emulating the apostle. There on the one hand you have the debauchery and the satanic cult of Tahiti, the people of Tahiti who had sunk that low. That's the bottom of the spiritual realm, spiritual levels. And here this is the top of the spiritual levels. This is how far we can go spiritually in this life to attain the Father's glory. And you know that anybody who has inherited the Father's glory ha- is doing this very thing suffering on behalf of others. It's like going through a fast. We offer our fast on behalf of somebody or some cause, right? So you do your suffering. Your suffering is part of your sacrifice in mortality. No matter where the suffering comes from, yes, there may be suffering initially for your sins and for your iniquities or your generational dysfunctional patterns, the curses of your previous generations that you've inherited, but after a while, that's paid off, then what happens? Your suffering still goes on, but this time, it's like a bank of merit that you can address in some spiritual direction for somebody or some cause in Christ that helps build the Father's kingdom. You then become a savior of others, and they, in turn, become savior of others. And so it spreads. That's the only way the Father's kingdom is going to be built. He has put us in positions like that to be saviors of others. If we're not saviors of others, we we'll have the salt as savor. its and Dr. Covenants, we'll read it in a minute. So you have, in Isaiah, you have seven spiritual levels, and they all... I should go back to... These seven spiritual levels... <clears throat> are like Jacob's ladder and there are angels ministering up and down. People on one level are ministering to a level, be- angels on one level, and people are ministering to the lo- level below them. But someone is ministering to them from a higher level. D.N.C. 76, his vision of the telestial kingdom, where he sees angels ministering from the celestial kingdom through the ter- terrestrial to the telestial and the Holy Spirit is ministered by the angels who are appointed to minister to people in the celestial kingdom. It all starts from above and goes down successively below. And whichever level we're on, we're on some, one of these levels, we minister to others to do for others what has been done for us. So we're all involved in this Father's plan. We're all involved. And... We don't have to be. We can renege on our responsibilities. But we have been uniquely called to embrace the fullness of the gospel in these latter days, restored through the prophet Joseph Smith. We have the Church of Christ on the earth today. And we have been called from the foundation of the earth to this, for who we are today and what we can become through embracing the fullness of the gospel. The fullness of the gospel, We don't. most of us don't even have a clue what it means, but it means... It means this very thing, what we're seeing here. And that Isaiah teaches through the examples of King Hezekiah, through what the Book of Mormon teaches, through the examples of the sons of Mosiah who converted the Lamanites. Why aren't we converting Lamanites today? Don't they need converting? Why aren't we doing the same miracles they did? Do we have to be goaded continuously? Therein is the fullness of the gospel. The sons of Helaman and Helaman's role toward the sons of Helaman. They called him father. What did that mean? Just because he was like a daddy to them? No, that meant he was a proxy savior to them. It's technical language. It's language from covenant theology. So you need to learn all of that. He called them his sons. That means vassals. According to the Near Eastern paradigm of emperor vassal covenants, it governs all of Hebrew theology. LDS theology. To become sons of God means to become proxy saviors of others. This is from a book that I'm currently writing. It's a, it's a book of literary tools on Isaiah for helping you to understand Isaiah. And it's a couple of paragraphs about emperor vassal relationships. Emperor vassal relationships to the ancient Near East consisted of an emperor appointing a vassal or vassals to rule under his jur- jurisdiction in his empire the emperor assigned each vassal a part of his empire over which to rule as king. Comprised of a city-state with adjoining towns and villages, this so-called promised land became the vassals by virtue of his treaty or covenant with the emperor. The emperor had maybe ten such vassals in his empire or more. The covenant was conditional, however, on whether the vassal remained loyal to the emperor and didn't change his allegiance to another emperor You know, in other words, if, if, if Christ or the Father becomes our emperor, then who would another emperor be? Yeah, Satan. In tr- and we do that so easily. We slip into denial. In treaty language, the vassal was said to love the emperor if he kept his commandments or the terms of the covenant. So that's also a legal term. Love. Blessings or curses followed the vassal's obedience or disobedience, respectively, to the covenants terms as a king 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 of kings and lord of lords the emperor protected the vassal by rallying his host in defense of a loyal vassal who faced a mortal threat called the common enemy of the emperor and the vassal that should ring familiar from the temple endowment language anyone threatening the vassal with death would be annihilated over time when a vassal proved loyal to the emperor under all conditions the emperor legally adopted him as his son. So from being just his servant, now he becomes a son of God. That should also peak volumes from the temple endowment. At that point, the relationship between the emperor and the vassal changed from a lord-servant to a father-son relationship. As in the oath and covenant of the priesthood, which the father makes. He makes it, we don't make it. That's the unconditional covenant that he makes after we've passed all the tests. Then the covenant becomes unconditional. It had depended on whether the vassal remained loyal to the emperor. Now the covenant becomes unconditional or forever. Like eternal life or um, a covenant forever or an eternal covenant. Any language like that tells you the covenant has become unconditional. All covenants with God are perpetual, but they become unconditional when all the conditions have been met. And the blessed heritage of his posterity, not just your own, because what you do in life affects your eternal posterity. If you have one, and you have one, because that's the highest covenant that God can make. The emperor protected the people of the vassal when the vassal kept the law of the emperor, and the vassal's people kept the law of the vassal. That was the idea behind Israel's elders asking for a king when Israel faced grave peril at the hands of the Philistines. By the way, Philistines and Palestinians is the same word in Hebrew. God's covenant with King David, which followed, functioned primarily as a means for obtaining God's protection. Under its terms, the king became God's vassal and God became Israel's emperor. We see the protection clause of the Davidic covenant operating in the book of Isaiah when King Hezekiah and his his people face a mortal threat by an invading Assyrian army of 185,000 men. When Hezekiah kept God's law and the people kept Hezekiah's law, the angel of God slays the Assyrian host in one night. Under the terms of the Sinai covenant, Israel as a whole had been required to keep God's law in order for the people to receive his divine protection. Under the terms of the Davidic covenant, on the other hand, which God instituted in response to Israel's demands for a king, he required only that the king keep his law while the people were required to keep the king's law. Both covenants follow the pattern of ancient and recent emperor-vassal covenants in which Israel's God played the role of emperor and the people or their king played the role of the vassal. For the people of Israel, the Davidic covenant thus constituted a lesser law, a lesser law than the Sinai covenant. They now merely needed to obey their king in order to obtain God's protection. For the king, however, the Davidic covenant was a higher law, as he was now answerable for his people's disloyalties to Israel's God in order for God to extend his protection. That's why you have, in the Book of Mormon, when the Nephites go from a monarchy to judges, what was said there? Alma the elder said, King Mos- Mosiah repeated it, it would be better for you to have a king if you could always be sure that the king would be righteous. But there was this horrible example of who? Who? King Noah, right? If the king was not righteous, then he's not going to keep God's law and then the people lose their protection. And the Nephites lost horribly against the Lamanites when that happened. And so they went to Judges where the people collectively are answerable for their own protection under the terms of the Sinai covenant now again. It went back from the Davidic covenant, so to speak, to the Sinai covenant as judges, under judges. And what did King Mosiah say at the time? He said, or or the people said, they were willing to answer for their own sins now. Because up to that time, who had been answering for their sins? The king had. What? Like Christ, to win their spiritual salvation? No. But like Christ, to obtain their physical protection. Their temporal salvation, that's part of the Davidic covenant. It's all about protection. And the protection clause of the covenant is that when the king keeps God's law and the people keep the king's law, the emperor is under obligation to protect both king and people. That used to be close to what the old temple endowment said before it was changed in the 80s. Redemptive suffering. Now we go to King Hezekiah and see how this paradigm works. See how this Davidic covenant works in action. In the 14th year, and remember, put yourself in the role of the king here because that's what we're supposed to live up to, right? Kings and priests in the House of Israel and queens and priestesses. In the 14th year, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, marched against all the fortified cities of Judea and seized them. And the king of Assyria sent Rabshakeh with a large army from Lachish to King Hezekiah in Jerusalem. And he took up a position at the aqueduct of the upper reservoir on the road to the laundry plaza. Why there? It was a strategic place where a generation earlier, Hezekiah, I mean, uh, Isaiah had spoken to Hezekiah's father, King Ahaz, and said, because you cited, you know, you didn't rely on the protection clause of your covenant with Jehovah, you relied on on a, a new covenant, you were not loyal to him. You took another emperor to be your, you know, um, your protector, namely the king of Assyria in his day. He said to the king of Assyria, I am your servant and your son. Help me against these invaders. He didn't rely on the Lord to protect him. As, his, as Isaiah um, you know, <clears throat> counseled him. So now, where do the Assyrians come in? At the very place where Isaiah, protected, uh, excuse me, where Isaiah prophesied that the Assyrians would come in to the Promised Land and invade it. In chapters 6 through 9 and 10 also. And the next scene is where Rabshakeh, the Assyrian general, stands and calls out to the people directly and this is a real test for the people because if they go with Hezekiah, their king, you know, who knows if God is going to come and protect them? This is an act of faith on their part. But if they go out to the Assyrians, they're not going to kill them. They'll just take them to another part of the empire like the Assyrians did and put them somewhere else to take them off their home base, destroy their patriotism. They did that to all the nations they conquered. So this is a real test for the people now, not just for the king. Rabbi Shalkev stood and called out in a loud voice in Judean because they understood the Judean language, Hebrew. Hear the words of the great king. The great king is the king of kings, the emperor, the the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, do not let Hezekiah delude you. There is the thus says the king, or thus says the Lord. Like the prophets say, thus says the Lord. They are emissary of the great king the Lord of lords, the king of kings. Thus says the king, do not let Hezekiah delude you. He cannot deliver you. Do not let Hezekiah make you trust in Jehovah by saying, Jerusalem will surely save us. This city shall not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. I mean, they've conquered all the other nations. Why not this one? This is the last one, so to speak. And this scenario, by the way, repeats itself in the end time because this whole scenario is an allegory of what happens in the end time. Remember, even historical material in the book of Isaiah is a type and shadow of something that happens in the end time. Isaiah's is an end time scenario. So they had conquered pretty well all of the ancient Near East and now they're laying siege to Jerusalem. And imagine this now, a world power in the end time like Assyria, a militaristic world power from the north, the first who set a precedent for conquering the ancient world by military force. That's a huge type and shadow for the end time, and who sees and vision? Isaiah. Who else? Spencer. Or well, close to it. He was more involved with his own personal part of things. He didn't know what was going on in the rest of the world, but Isaiah did. Isaiah's the the backstory dispenses, book. so now the king does what the king heard it. He rent his clothes, put on sackcloth, and entered the house of Jehovah, the temple. And he sent Eliakim, overseer of the palace, Shebna, the secretary, and the elders of the priest, in sackcloth to the prophet Isaiah, the son of Amoz. And when King Hezekiah's servants came to Isaiah, they said to him, Thus says Hezekiah, you he know, their emissaries for the king. This is a woeful day, a day of reproof and disgrace. Children have reached the point of birth, but there is no strength to deliver them. It may be that Jehovah your God has heard the words of Rabshakeh, whom his Lord, the king of Assyria, has sent to scorn the living God, and will rebuke him for the things Jehovah your God has heard, Who are you to offer a prayer on behalf of the remnant that is left? What is this about children have reached the point of birth, but there is no strength to deliver them? That's where that expression, the birth pains of the Messiah, comes from. Remember Egypt when the Israelites were in bondage and the hot toss-musters that were set over them, whipped them, and Moses saw what was going on and intervened at one point and got into trouble? That was the birth pangs of the Messiah. Who was the Messiah in that case? Moses. Moses, the deliverer. In the end time of the book of Revelation, there is the woman Zion who flees into the wilderness, as in Isaiah, and she gives birth to a male child. That male child is the deliverer. It's not the Lord. It's an end time scenario, as in Isaiah, where the, the woman gives birth to the deliverer. Who's that? In the book of Isaiah, that's the Lord's servant and the descendant of David, who prepares the way for the coming of the Lord, the Second Coming in the New Testament, the, the coming of Jehovah in Isaiah, and then she gives birth to a whole nation of of children right on the heels of that, because the deliverer delivers the people out of Egypt, and delivers the people from captivity, and restores people, the house of Israel, and and like Moses, schools them in the law of God and brings them up to a Zion level like Enoch did. Enoch is another deliverer. He's a latter-day Enoch, a latter-day Moses and a latter-day John the Baptist. He's a composite individual. Composite personas. And then we have the idea that Isaiah 2 may be interceding with the Lord for this situation on a higher spiritual level than Hezekiah. It may be that Jehovah your God has heard the words of Shabbat Shakeh, whom his Lord, the king of Assyria, has sent to scorn the living God by defying the God of Israel. Were you to offer a prayer on behalf of the remnant that is left? And of course, it doesn't say that he did, but what, Isaiah is going to say, no, I'm not going to do that. I bring all of this spiritual weight to bear, and this spiritual merits, from the spiritual level that he's on. And we know that at that point, Isaiah is on the level of a translated being. He shows us that in a literary structure. So that makes his intercession even more effective than Hezekiah. And Hezekiah prayed to Jehovah and said, O Jehovah of hosts, God of Israel, who sits enthroned between the cherubim, who alone are God over all the kingdoms of the earth, it is you who made the heavens and the earth, O Jehovah, give ear and hear. O Jehovah, open your eyes and see. Listen to all the words Sennacherib has sent to mock the living God. O Jehovah, the kings of Assyria have indeed destroyed all peoples and their lands, committing their gods to the fire. For they were no gods with the works of men's hands, of wood and stone, and so they could destroy them. But now, O Jehovah, our God, deliver us out of his hand that all kingdoms on earth may know That you alone are Jehovah. And so, what does the Lord do then? Does He immediately save Israel or the Jews? The remnants of the Jews, the remnants of the southern kingdom who were, you know, within the walls of the old city of Jerusalem. In those days, Hezekiah became gravely ill, and the prophet Isaiah, the son of Amos, came to him and said, Thus says Jehovah, put your house in order, you will die, you will not recover. At this, Hezekiah turned his face toward the wall. He's facing the wall, a dead end. And prayed to Jehovah, I beseech you to remember, O Jehovah, how I have walked faithfully before you with full purpose of heart and have done what is good in your eyes. And Hezekiah wept disconsolately. He was just a young man. A righteous young man. At the flower of his life, he was going to die. Why? Remember, it's all good, right? The fact that he says, I've walked before you faithfully with full purpose of his heart and done what is good in your eyes, tells us what? He's a righteous king. Therefore, he should be what? A protector of his people. If he keeps God's law and the people keep his law, the people did not go out to the Assyrians, so they obviously kept kept his law because the king told them not to answer Hezekiah told them not to answer the Assyrian general. They, they re- remained silent. didn't answer a word. Some of, them, some of them didn't say, well, you know, let's go out to the Assyrian. Nobody said that. They were all mum. Hush. They kept the king's law. The king kept God's law. So God now was under obligation to protect them physically. I'm sure that that Isaiah was interceding with the Lord, with God, on behalf of who? Hezekiah and the people. (laughs) He was doing what the general authority, (laughs) the apostle, the friend, Mm -hmm. was doing for Spencer. So this is what it's about. This is the proxy role. It's funny, isn't it? Okay, so now we go into this, the suffering of Hezekiah. This is written after, his, after it's all over, he writes the account of his suffering. Hezekiah, king of Judah,'s account of his illness written upon his recovery. I said, In the prime of life must I depart through Sheol's gate. Sheol is hell, or this death, or the spirit prison. Deprived of the balance of my years, I thought, I shall not see Jehovah in the land of the living he had not yet felt that he made sure his connexion by seeing the Lord in this world, in this mortality. I shall not now behold man among those dwelling in mortality. Notice the, the, the parallel, the synonymous parallel there. Jehovah is parallel with man. Exalted man. Jehovah, God of Israel. He's a man. It says it right there in Isaiah. Well, didn't he come as a man to Abraham and Sarah? The three angels came. They even ate of the food that Sarah prepared. And two of them went on down to Sodom and rescued Lot. And the Lord, Jehovah, one of the three men, stayed with Abraham. And got into that conversation about, would you destroy Sodom if, they, if there were 50 righteous men, 40, 30, 10? No, it wouldn't. Not that many left. My tabernacle is being uprooted, carried away from me like a shepherd's tent. My life is cut off like woven fabric. He is severing me from the loom. Can I contain myself until morning while he lo- like a lion, he racks my whole frame? Surely as night has followed day, you are bringing on my end. Like a mounting lark, I twitter, like a dove, I murmur, my eyes are drawn looking heavenward. I'm utterly sleepless from bitterness of soul. O Jehovah, I'm in straits. Be my surety. But what shall I say when he has already spoken for me? He said, you'll die, you'll not recover, right? When he himself has brought it about, you can't argue with him. So if it's happening, it's all to the good, somehow. O Lord, my Lord, by means of such trials comes the newness of life, and throughout them all the renewal of my spirit. This is his descent phase, and his descent phase always precedes what? His ascent phase. We've got to get to the ascent phase, so you've got to wade through this affliction and trial. Like Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. His suffering became so exceeding great, what did he do? He simply intensified his prayer. By means of such trials comes a newness of life, and throughout them all the renewal of my spirit. Surely for my own good I am in such dire distress. By its means you draw my soul out of the pit of dissolution. For you have cast all my sins behind you, restoring and reviving me. What if there was no spiritual salvation? Where would we go? Ultimately, we'd be cut off from God forever, so we'd be, our spirits would die too. In the pit of dissolution where we're all dissolved, our spirits would die the second death. Who does die the second death, though, no. even in spite of Christ's atonement for transgression? Who? Sons of perdition, yes. It's a point of no return for people of the most evil ilk. Then the word of Jehovah came to Isaiah saying, This was Hezekiah's personal mortal threat, right? The people collectively were facing a collective mortal threat from the Assyrians. They're going to wipe them out if they didn't go over to the Assyrians. Leave none of them left. What would you as, as fathers and mothers think about your children? You wouldn't care about yourself, but your children? Shouldn't we just go over to the Assyrians? We know that our children at least could live. Yeah, but what other evils might then happen, you know, as a result of your poor choice? Can you imagine the situation or situations in the end time where this scenario will repeat itself and you are there, surrounded by an enemy, a large enemy, 185,000? That's more than we send into Iraq. Who are you going to believe, God or the Assyrians? Go and tell Hezekiah, thus says Jehovah, the God of your father David. Why well, mention David? Because of the Davidic covenant, Hezekiah is, it, is it a son of David, and he has, his stewardship is under the auspices of the Davidic covenant. And anybody who is ordained a king and a priest in the house of Israel also has his stewardship under the terms of the Davidic covenant. So why don't we learn all about the Davidic covenant, right? We need to know in order to measure up to the roles of kings and queens, how that works. I've heard your prayer and seen your tears. In other words, your afflictions have back, backed up your um, intercession with me on behalf of your people. Now it's backed up with a bunch of, you know, substance. You not only have lived righteously throughout your life, or most, you know, repented when you have, but now you've gone through this horrendous ordeal knowing or being willing to pay a price for your people's protection, physical salvation. So now the emperor is under obligation to deliver both king and people. When the king keeps his law, and this suffering is part of the law, part of keeping the emperor's law, because he's answerable to the emperor for his people's disloyalties to the emperor. So obviously this suffering has to do with him the weight of suffering that he has to endure on, his, on behalf of his people for their sake. Like King Mosiah, he didn't have to answer for the people's sins anymore. Every man was willing to answer for his own sins now, his own disloyalties to the emperor. Makes sense? But Hezekiah is still under the terms of the Davidic covenant. I'll add 15 years to your life, I'll deliver you in the city, out of the hand of the king of Assyria, I will protect the city. Why is that there? Because it has everything to do with his suffering. It has everything to do with the price of suffering that Hezekiah is paying. Therefore, thus says Jehovah, concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not enter the city or shoot an arrow here, no missiles in the end time on the people there, he shall not advance against it with armor, nor erect siege works against it, By the way he came, he shall return. He shall not enter the city, says Jehovah. I will protect this city and save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. Now, the end time has a servant called David. And any king and priest in the house of Israel is also a servant in the pattern of King David. Doing the same thing on different spiritual levels. The end time servant is on the seraph level, like Isaiah. And the other kings and priests, some of them are on Hezekiah's level, which is a son-servant level, also a celestial level. It shows you that both parties to the covenant are keeping their parts of the agreement. God is keeping his part of the agreement, and the proxy saver is keeping his part of the agreement under the terms of the Davidic covenant. The atonement that Christ wrought on behalf of all the world for, his, the, for people's spiritual salvation was the law that he had to keep under the terms of the Davidic covenant on a higher level than anyone else. Then the angel of Jehovah went out and slew 185,000 in the Assyrian camp when the men arose in the morning there lay all their dead bodies. Well, it says when they woke up in the morning, they are all dead. They're all dead men. Saviors of men. Back to Visions of Glory. The red stood for sacrifice, but not in the way that I had previously understood sacrifice. What is, has what is our current understanding of sacrifice been? Well, you know, you sacrifice this, and you sacrifice that. It's kind of a generic thing, Right. Not for a specific purpose, like when you fast for some cause, specific cause, now you sacrifice for some specific cause. And what is that? To fulfill your role as a proxy savior. Of who? Well, first of all, if you're a guy, of your wife and children. That is the role of a patriarch. What did Jacob say of Nephi? Nephi was not a king, but he said to the people of his day, about speaking of Nephi unto whom you look as a king and a protector because the protector role goes along with being a king and how do you protect? by keeping the law of the, of the Davidic covenant in other words keeping yourself totally pure sanctified before God just for your own sake no because so much is riding on you who? your wife and children and anyone else whom you choose. Because when the angels came to to Lot to deliver him, it said in Genesis that God remembered Abraham and took Lot out of the midst of the overthrow. So the Lord was saving Lot for Abraham's sake, but he saved Lot's daughters for whose sake? Lot. And the angels also said to him, Are there any others whom you have here? Bring them out. So he was willing to save others in Sodom for Lot's sake. This is the pattern. This is the paradigm. This is the the Vedic covenant in action. The proxy savior covenant. The knowledge I received included a full understanding of the condescension and atonement of Christ, but it also symbolized a willingness to likewise sacrifice as Christ had to be prepared for this mission. In order to receive the key and the assignment it represented, one had to be prepared by sacrificing their will, their earthly possessions, their health if called upon, or even their lives if need be, to follow the path God ordained to prepare that person with charity, faith, doctrinal purity, sound understanding, and most of all, perfect obedience to God's will. There was no room for self-will here anymore. This, this covenant could not operate if there was self-will. It had to be a total resignation to God's will. And what was Elder Maxwell's greatest teaching? He was always talking about sacrificing what? The only thing that really, really, we really can sacrifice, he said, was what? To sacrifice our own wills. He understood this principle totally. This is the course Christ had submitted himself to, through his, though his suffering was far greater for all mankind, this lesser suffering we go through is to prepare an individual for their specific mission. It took me years to realize this is the reason the angel called it the fellowship of the suffering of Christ. So to be a proxy savior is what to be a fellow in the fellowship of the suffering of Christ. We'll talk more about that. Remember that a third of Spencer's visions was taken from his memory. Only one third is in the book, and the other third is in his manuscript, which he does chooses not to publish. And I can guess which things were taken from his memory, but they're in Isaiah. They're a test of our faith from Isaiah. They're also a very divisive thing in Isaiah. It's part of the Lord's test for us today. We stay with the program, no matter what happens. That is your faithfulness to the Lord not for your faithfulness to the church, it's your faithfulness to the Lord. No matter what happens, you be unjudging and stay with the program. Don't go out there where the wild beasts go or where the wild beasts can devour you. That's in Isaiah. I was given to understand that there was no other way, no other path to this type of service. It was a path which could require the shedding of blood or death necessary like Hezekiah and sacrifices of similar magnitude when a servant of God followed this path to its end it left a recognizable mark upon the servant a glow if you will of righteousness why? because when he went through this his descent phase now he was ascended to a higher spiritual level he was empowered of God and people can pick that up you can pick that up about a person that he's empowered of God and you can trust such a person it's almost like you instantly know it. It was a preparation which made it impossible to fail. I think I love that sentence <laughs> out of all his book. I love that sentence. When you get to that point, it's impossible to fail. How about that? You can totally trust in it. So this whole suffering thing is just to get you there. This whole challenge with persecution and all these vicissitudes and machinations of men, all these injustices foisted upon you, whatever they may be, from whichever source they come, it doesn't matter. If they come from the highest authority or the lowest authority, from sons of perdition, it doesn't matter where they come from. It's the Lord testing you. It's coming from from the Lord, not from them. They're just instruments to bring it about. which those who, to whom he or she would minister would recognize and then follow. When you get to the seraph level, which is the translated level, you're empowered to be completely convincing. People on that level have the, what's called the convincing power. And part of it is words, but part of it is the spirit behind the words. They can feel the words that are part of you. not just You're not just mouthing words from the scriptures. It's part of who you are. It's part of what you've internalized and, can, and are living. It's a living word now. The blue handle represented the royal bloodline, which I immediately knew was the Latter-day priesthood. Well, also a little more than that. Where does this royal bloodline come from? Think about it. I'm not going to give you the answer, but it's in Isaiah 53 somewhere. We have also heard it called the holy priesthood after the order of the Son of God, which is not the current priesthood. It's the priesthood of Abraham. It was the priesthood that Abraham sought after that came down through Melchizedek and from and, and you know through Noah and all the way to Adam, and from. Priesthood after the Son of God it came from Him. It has to do with the Abrahamic covenant, which is the promise of a posterity as numerous as the sands of the seashore and as the stars of heaven for multitude. A celestial posterity and mortal posterities. The blue represented three things. First, the receipt and righteous magnification of the present priesthood. Second, it represented the receipt of the fullness of that same priesthood, and worthiness and the timetable of God called it forth. So Joseph Smith calls the fullness of the Melchizedek priesthood differentiates between the current priesthood and the fullness of the Melchizedek priesthood. It's in the teachings of the prophet Joseph Smith. Lastly, it represented a, a foreordination to this very mission, to release these people, only that specifically ordained officer of the priesthood could, ma- could manipulate the key. Well, why do we have the story of the sons of Messiah in the Book of Mormon? Why was their conversion called the Greater Marvelous Work? What is the Greater Marvelous Work by definition in the Book of Mormon? Read it through all the seven instances where it appears, and what is it connected to? It's, an, it's always connected to and part of. The restoration of the house of Israel. By definition, it's the restoration of the house of Israel prior to the coming of the Lord. That's the great and marvelous work. And we are to bring it about. How? By being those 144,000 who ministered to them to do that. Who are still in a lost and fallen state. The Jews, the Le- Lehi's descendants, and the Ten tribes. <laughs> All right. We are to convert them as the sons of Messiah converted them en masse in that day when a nation is born in a day. We are the ones to give birth to that nation. We are the deliverers of that nation. We are the Moses and brothers of Jared and Enoch of that day. We are to do all that work. If we don't do it, it's not going to happen. We have the birthright role of Ephraim to be a savior to his brethren as as Ephraim's father Joseph was a savior of his brethren. He said, only individuals like you. And in the end time, it's all about individuals. It's not about masses of people. The masses of people go where? Down to destruction. 90% of the earth's population, according to Isaiah's tithing imagery, only a tenth, a tithing of the earth's population will survive and a tithing of the tithe are the elect. He said, only individuals like you have been willing to undergo similar pain and abuses as these people have will they ever listen to and trust. You must continue to drink of this bitter cup and not become bitter yourself. This will give you the experience and knowledge you need so that when you are called to work with these people, they will trust you and recognize in you that you are a fellow sufferer and refugee from persecution. Remember, the Beatitudes... Start off really nice, right? Blessed are the poor in spirit, but like we said last time, blessed are you when men persecute you and speak all manner of evil of you falsely for my name's sake, for so persecuted they the prophets who were before you. Because at that point you are on the level of a prophet. These sufferings and your personal triumph over them will be written on your very soul and into the sinews of your body. They will recognize it and trust you. Then he said something that I've pondered for years. He said, he added, they will see that you also belong to the fellowship of the suffering of Christ. Well, we'll learn more about that in just a little. There's a little more in our Doctrine and Covenants about what that is. The key in my vision is representative of the key every Latter-day builder of Zion will obtain for their specific mission. Each individual probably will not see an actual key being handed to them, but will go through the same process that was shown me of sacrifice, priesthood, and renewal and that Hezekiah went through. We read it. No doubt, the sons of Messiah all went through that. Alma the Younger went through it. All those who attain those higher spiritual levels go through their individual descent phases completely tailored by God for them personally. What may be hard to them may not be hard to you or to some other person. But when it happens to you, you'll know it. And you'll know that it's one of the hardest things for you personally. It's it's orchestrated to be that way so that you can rise above it. I had to receive this key in order to, in the ordained way, by becoming a member of the Fellowship of the Suffering of Christ and do it freely, willingly, even joyfully. This key represented the full course and calling of the priesthood. Only with all three of these elements can we claim these blessings, the honor of serving, and the honor of serving in any great cause. When we do this, then we are no longer serving the church or serving our families, or even ourselves, we are serving Jesus Christ directly and doing the Father's work of preparing the world for the end of time and the return of Christ. In other words, it's on the level of translated beings who are beyond the point where they need the scaffolding of the church to get them there. Yes, they need that in the beginning, and then they move above that. People on a translated level, a seraphim, they minister between the worlds, they're not tied down to the church, but they're working in complete harmony with the church. In this mighty work, we will free people from their self imposed prisons, whether real or figurative, and Isaiah adds, physical, physical prisons, and bring them to Zion. The key did not re- represent a call to preside or to be a latter day prophet. It represented the process of acquiring through the atonement of Christ the degree of personal purification and sanctification which requires the recipient to serve in this great work. You think such a recipient of this great work would be watching television every night or, you know, or going to this thing or that thing, worldly thing, participating in worldly activities of any kind? No, from then on, it's total subservience of your will to the Lord and total sacrifice of your whole self, like offering your whole souls to Him, not just once or twice, but continuously, day and night. It's a complete immolation of yourself in the similitude of ancient sacrifices by fire that were, that were consumed completely by fire. That's why seraphim are called seraphim, which means fiery burning ones. They dwell amidst everlasting burnings. There's no impurity in them. No thought, no word, no action that's impure or worldly or pertaining to anything less than that high spiritual level. It is a work which, as you will see in future visions I describe, is fully organized and carried out by the Latter-day Church. This is not a path that leads outside of the Church, even on a parallel course with the Church, but which brings you into the heart of the ordained mission of the Latter-day Church to prepare the world for the return of Christ. Doctrine and Covenants, 103. Freely I say unto you that I have decreed a decree which my people shall realize. So some of us at least are to realize it, even if others don't. Inasmuch as they hearken from this very hour unto the counsel which I, the Lord their God, shall give unto them. Because up until that hour they had what? Not hearkened to it. And here we live in Babylon, and are we any more going to hearken to this counsel than they did? We were put through their paces? You know, we're thrown out of their houses, we're persecuted, and we're not. And we're living in luxury, and we think we're going to do this more than they did? And he's saying they, de- they even didn't do it? Go figure that one. So we're going to have to really go through some serious trials here in order to attain that level. More serious than they did. Behold, they shall, for I have decreed it, begin to prevail against my enemies from this very hour. And by hearkening to observe all the words which I, the Lord their God, shall speak unto them, they shall never cease to prevail until the kingdoms of the world are subdued under my feet and the earth is given unto the saints to possess it forever and ever. Well, since it hasn't happened yet, we're not there yet. We haven't done it yet. But inasmuch as they keep not my commandments and hearken not to observe all my words, the, the kingdoms of the world shall prevail against them. For they were set to be a light unto the world, to be saviors of men, and inasmuch as they are not saviors of men, they are as salt as lo at savor, and is thenceforth good for nothing but to be cast out and trodden under foot of men. What is that telling us? That we have all been called to the same work, right? To be saviors of men, but there are the blessings and there are the curses. And so if we don't do this, these are our two choices. As Latter-day Saints, Ephraimites, the birthright role, these are our two choices. We've come through the Gentile lineages, and the the Book of Mormon identifies with the Gentiles. And what does it say about the Gentiles all the way through? They either repent or they harden their hearts. They either repent or they harden their hearts. So there's a lot riding on us. How is the Lord going to fulfill all this Latter-day work without us? Not going to happen. Some of us has to measure up, have to measure up to fulfill these roles. How did these works of the past of great deliverance happen? You know, in the Old Testament, in the Book of Mormon, how did those great deliverances happen? Those wonderful events because some people measured up and did it. Let's go to the 144,000 and see how that ties in with redemptive suffering. Suffering can be redemptive when it is. Within the terms of these covenants. Well, where do we make these covenants? Well, haven't you been to the temple? What is required of you there? Who is who is shown as the great exemplar of people there? What are these signs and tokens? You know, what are they about? What do, they, what do they mean for you personally when you emulate him? Hey, it happens to you. It starts happening to you in, in, in different ways. And after these things I saw four angels standing on the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, nor on the sea, nor on, on any tree. And I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. That's the person in Isaiah. That's the servant in Isaiah. He comes from the east, chapter 46, chapter 41. He's the bird of prey, like the fiery flying serpent. The seal of the living God, in other words, the sealing power. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it's given to hurt the, the earth and the sea. When? In the end time. Saying, Hurt not the sea, nor the, the earth, not the, nor the sea, nor the trees, until we have sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads. And I heard the number of those who were sealed, and they were sealed 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel. Well, these are not the ten lost tribes who are still in a lost and fallen state, who need to be ministered to. It is these guys, the 144,000, who minister to the ten tribes, who minister to the Jews and to the descendants of Lehi. To bring them up to the church of the firstborn. We'll read that right here. Where do we find a precedent or a type and shadow for 144,000 being of Ephraim, let's say, and also 12,000 of each of the 12 tribes? Where do you find that? In the 12 apostles of Jesus in Palestine, What was the promise that Jesus gave them? They would become judges over the 12 tribes of Israel. But they were Jews. They were probably of Judah and Benjamin, the the two main Jewish tribes. One was a Levite, right? So here they are being assigned to be judges over the 12 tribes of Israel. It was by assignment. It was a way of organizing God's kingdom. There is your precedent and there is your type for the 144,000. These 144,000 have the Father's name on their foreheads. What does that tell you? I think that's in Revelation 7, isn't it? What does that tell you? Anything to do with the Father is what? On the level of translated beings. Like the three Nephites went to the Father's kingdom. The nine went to the Son's kingdom. Anything to do with the Father has to do with not just elect level, but translated level. The level of seraphim. Isaiah calls... Translated being seraphim. We are to understand that those who are sealed are high priests. Well, where do you find high priests except in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints? Where do we find saviors on Mount Zion except in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints? Where do we find servants of the Most High God, as in Daniel? The other one was from Obadiah. Except in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. We are these people. We are those servants whom the servant in Zenus' allegory of the olive tree in Jacob 5 has to gather, or has to hire, to help him graft in the natural branches. We are those servants. 144,000 assigned to be judges over the 12 tribes, judging the 12 tribes under the judgeship of the 12 apostles. Ordained after the holy order of God to administer the everlasting gospel, you know, the gospel in its fullness, in all its fullness, for they are they who are ordained out of every nation, kindred tongue, and people by the angels to whom is given power over the nations of the earth to bring as many as will come to the church of the firstborn. Who are the church of the firstborn? Elect. People whose calling election has been made sure. Just men made perfect. There are different names for people of the church of the firstborn. Just men made perfect. Elect of God. Church of the Firstborn, calling election made sure, Exalt first level of exaltation, or the second. So when it says, in Matthew 24, 31, he shall send his angels with the great sound of a trump, and they shall gather his his elect together from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other, who is he talking about? He's talking about people who are, on the level of the elect, the church of the firstborn, who are being gathered by who? By the 144,000. But he calls them angels here. Why? Because they're translated beings. And translated beings are like angels. How do we know that? Right here. The three Nephites. I was about to write the names of those who were never to taste of death, but the Lord forbade, therefore I write them not, for they are hid from the, from the world, but behold, I have seen them, they have ministered to me, and behold, they will be among the Gentiles, and the Gentiles shall know them not. How do you know you'll never run into one in Costco? I mean, they're everywhere, and more of them, more of them are coming. Watch out. They will also be among the Jews, and the Jews shall not know them. And it shall come to pass when the Lord seeth fit in his wisdom, they shall, be minister, they shall minister to all the scattered tribes of Israel, to all nations, kindreds, tongues, and people, and shall bring out of them unto Jesus many souls, that their desire may be fulfilled, and also because of the convincing power which is in them. Well, this is the mission of the 144,000. We just read it, the NC 77. And they are as the angels of God, because on a translated level you are. So he will send his angels and they will gather his elect from the four winds. Why winds? Why not from the four corners of the earth? Because some of them may be somewhere else. And if necessary, we'll go and get them there. And if they pray unto the Father in the name of Jesus, they can show themselves unto whatsoever man it seems them good. Therefore great and marvelous works shall be wrought by them before that great and coming day when all people must surely stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Yea, even among the Gentiles shall a great and marvelous work be wrought by them before that judgment day. Well, what is that great and marvelous work? Analyze it in all its instances in the Book of Mormon. I I give seminars on this. It's all about the restoration of the house of Israel. And who does it? We, kings and queens of the Gentiles, spiritual kings and queens of the Gentiles, who minister to the house of Israel, do that. We as Ephraimites have to measure up to being kings and queens so that we minister to them and carry them upon our shoulders and in our arms to Zion. Who sees that? Isaiah sees it. And who else sees it? Spencer sees it. Isaiah is a great second witness of Spencer, or rather, Spencer is a great witness of Isaiah. The question is somewhat, is there, is there a kind of a symbolism... It has to do with the marking on the forehead uh, that maybe say they found elsewhere or that has its opposite parallel yeah. where, um, where Spencer sees somebody in a pornography situation and he sees a crack opening in his forehead or in his top of his head and evil spirits pop in and basically possess him, that person. Could that be why the mark is on the forehead, for example? The mark has, <clears throat> has everything to do with physical protection or as one of the things. We see in Ezekiel, when the Babylonians came in and destroyed Jerusalem, beginning at the temple, beginning at the temple, upon my house shall it begin. It always begins there. The angels were told to seal certain individuals again. We have individuals who were pure and holy before the Lord to mark them upon their foreheads so that when the Babylonians came in, the Babylonians had no power over those people. They either didn't see them, like the angels did not see Lot coming out of the door when the angels smote the intruders with blindness, or when Jesus in Nazareth you know, smote the people trying to throw him off the hill with blindness, something like that, or the uh, enemy could not harm them because they had the seal of God upon them. One way or another, they were physically protected. I also imagine that this is also the sealing power given to them, as with the three Nephites as we just read. And I think if, once you have the mark of the beast, too, then it would give the devil power over you, where once you take the mark, it may not be easy to ever get rid of it. So it's like a confirmation. You've, you, here you're confirmed in your righteousness, and there you're confirmed in wickedness. And then the consequences have to follow as a result. The oath and covenant of the priesthood in DNC 84, the Father makes with those who've lived up to all their priesthood responsibilities. But what are those responsibilities? It's way more than we realize. We can go all the way as far as we want to go. And Christ is our exemplar of how far we can go. Yeah, does the, does the Davidic covenant or the role of Davidic kings require the taking upon ourselves the sins of the people? Well, we have the scriptures to show that where the people were willing to answer for their own sins from then on. So they did away with kings, and they went to judges. So then on, they had no proxy savior. They were answerable directly to God for themselves and those who were theirs. But it's not for spiritual salvation. This is the thing that uh, in Alma 12 and 13, that Alma talks about. There was a foreshadowing of Christ's atonement for transgression in these high priests, all the way from Adam to Melchizedek to Abraham. What was that foreshadowing? What are the words that Alma uses? It's almost like a preemptive salvation of some kind. And these high priests were foreshadowing what Jesus himself would do. But at the same time, They were emulating what Jesus would do. You don't have to be of the Davidic bloodline. No, you don't. God offered the same covenant to the kings of the northern kingdom who were not of the Davidic bloodline. Yeah. But I expect that there is a lot to do with the Davidic uh, bloodline nevertheless in the end time that you may not know about. Because the Lord has allowed these lineages to go where he wants it to go. And who knows, but many of us are descendants of some very portending individuals that have lived in the world. When a member of the vassal's kingdom has not been faithful, does the, emperor, excuse, does the vassal have power to call upon the emperor for the salvation of those who have not been faithful in that man's kingdom? Right. Let's say you have a situation in Hezekiah's kingdom where a person actually went over to the Assyrians. Can Hezekiah's, you know, intercession be effective for that person? The way the covenant works is that the proxy savior keeps God's law, those for whom he's responsible or has a stewardship, they keep the proxy savior's law like the sons of Messiah. They observed every word of command strictly that Helaman gave them. What does that tell you? They kept They kept um, Helaman's law. And, And Helaman was a priest after the holy order of God, and he kept God's law. So they could not be slain. Same with Ammon. The sons of Mosiah kept Mosiah's law, and Mosiah kept God's law. So they could not be slain. I want to finish with the sons of Helaman and the sons of Mosiah first. The sons of Helaman, they did suffer terribly. There was not one that was not wounded. So that was part of their sacrifice. And we don't know what Helaman went through to get to where he was. You know, we don't know his backstory, All his trials and afflictions that got him to the level of where he was a high priest after the holy order of God, which is the level of translated beings. Uh, the scriptures don't give us all the specifics. We know a little bit about why Ammon had such great success, or the sons of Ammon, starting with Ammon. What was going on while Ammon was disarming the enemy and converting King Laman, which led to the conversion of many Lamanites. What was going on to the other sons of Messiah? They were in prison being tortured and they were suffering hunger and thirst and afflictions and trials. I reckon that they were helping to pay the price for the conversion of the the Lamanites at that time. Because the price always has to be paid. And it says they understood the scriptures perfectly. They had fasted and prayed and searched the scriptures diligently that they might, might know the Word of God. And know what? The fullness of the gospel that's in Isaiah and all the scriptures. It always has been there. And so they would have known that principle. They would have known the principles of salvation that are in the Davidic covenant on its different levels. Then you come to Alma the Younger and Alma the Elder, and when the angel comes to Alma the Younger, who is a a wicked person, leading people astray and, and destroying their lives spiritually, the angel comes without infringing on his free agency, just kind of scares the hell out of him, and... He gets him back on the path. But he said, he said because of the prayers of your father Alma and those who were fasting and praying with him, the angel came. So there we have divine intervention. Not just direct or even indirect physical protection. We have divine intervention. And that's on a higher level than just the regular protection. We see that with King Hezekiah because There an angel of the Lord intervened directly. That's divine intervention. But that was not just due to Hezekiah's intercession. That was due to someone interceding on a level of the translated being. Who was who? Isaiah. So Isaiah was part of that whole scenario. The same with Abraham and Lot. There was divine intervention. The angels came and took Lot out. Lot didn't want to go. They had to strong arm them out of there. And so, on that level, if you can attain spiritually that level, then you have power with God in those situations that you're mentioning, where a son has gone astray spiritually, but you want to bring him back. You can bring him back by you progressing to that level, and then having power with God on that spiritual level, and God will listen to you then, as you listen to Mosiah and many others. The ascending and descending principles are in my book, Uh, Isaiah decoded, ascending the ladder to heaven. The stairs, I suppose, would symbolize that. If you go down to uh, Teotihuacan in Mexico, you have three temples there, the temple of the sun, the moon, and the underworld. Telestial, terrestrial, and celestial symbolize in stone architecturally. And you go through descent, and then you ascend to a higher level. There is no other way. Jesus' descent phase was his coming into mortality the first time and passing through those that horrible ordeal for 24 hour transgressions. And his ascent phase is coming again in glory, you know. And those who live up to these kind of covenants will come with him in glory. That will be our ascent phase also. So if Wilfred Rudolph had a hard time getting there as in what's called his consternation, right? Then Wilfred Wood's account was that he went through this consternation phase, let's call it a descent phase, and he barely made it through that. And of course it depends on what level you end up on, because every time that you, you, know, you ascend the next level, the descent is greater than before. So I don't know where Wilford Wood have ended up, but... The descent corresponds to the ascent. And Christ descended below all, but also to ascend above all to his father's throne. And this paradigm is is wonderful. I mean, what is more glorious than that? To see it, you know, it's all spelled out for you. You say, okay, I'm on this level now, okay, and I've got to get to this level, and I'm aspiring to this level? Yeah. You know, I read, you know, I read Isaiah, or I read Visions of Glory, and I say, I can never let that go. I just kind of just say, oh, that's interesting, you know, and just forget about it and go on with life. No, I, I say, I want to be part of that. I want to do that. I'll pay any price for that. Bring it on. And I used to say that and, and the Lord did bring it on. <laughs> <laughs> then I had to deal with that. And I, I never knew what that was like until I actually went through it. And when you go through it, you know And when you see someone else going through it, you know, you can't judge them. You just have to say, you know, the Lord is doing something there. You can never judge an individual because you likely misjudge them. In the process, you you know, as you you judge others, you will be judged. So (laughs) that's scary stuff. And Joseph Smith was horribly misjudged. And Jesus was horribly, horribly misjudged. And those people who misjudged them brought those judgments upon themselves. How does the proxy savior role work in families? The man is the protector of his wife and children. The whole idea that was set up in the beginning in those ordinances where the vassal keeps, this is the way I'll put it, where the vassal keeps the king's law, the the emperor's law, and the people keep the king's law, the vassal's law, is so that it's all for the protection of the people. The Davidic covenant was, the elders of Israel knew what they were asking for, they were not just asking for a king because all the other nations had kings. Like this superficial version you get in gospel doctrine, if it was a very specific purpose. They were about to be wiped out by the Philistines. What do you do? It had taken Moses 40 years to bring up Israel up to that level, to where they could inherit the promised land and have power over their enemies, which was a covenant blessing of the Sinai covenant. So if something new had to be done. It had to be done fast. And we're going to see that again in Palestine soon. When the Davidic king comes, it's going to be in response to the need for protection. You'll see it. And families, it's all about protection for the wife and children. It does not, it does not put a woman on an, an equal role. The roles are equal, but the man may have to pay a price for the protection of his, of his wife and children. He has to answer for their disloyalties to God, for their physical protection. And you can take it one step further for their spiritual intervention at some point, if necessary. The temple work requires more righteousness than any other, and the greatest work of salvation for the, for the world or for the church is in, the, is in temple work. In temple work for the dead, yes. It's because what do you think is happening when you do, uh, when you do endowments and ceilings and, and ordinances for the dead? Then you empower them, right, to, to, get, to become empowered, and then what have you got going? You've got, it's like um, more for us than those who are against us on the other side, like in Elijah's case or Elisha. And um, the kingdom of God is moving forward through that. But also, you know, it, to, to be a savior on Mount Zion means more than, way more than just doing temple work for the dead. And, and the brethren say that. Uh, they said it from the earliest stages. It's in the Journal of Discourses. Uh, so, and what is that? It's the fullness of the gospel is is in these covenants, in the Davidic covenant. And when we are, you know, go through those covenants we make in the temple, we're basically accepting those covenants and showing that we're willing to pay any price to do our part. You know, those signs and tokens are very explicit. And the penalties would be taken out, but... I'll give you an example of the penalties. When Abraham uh, covenanted with the Lord, what did he do? He had these sacrificial animals. He sacrificed them, but he divided them all in half and put some on one side and some on the other. And the, the Lord passed through the midst of them as a fire. And what was Abraham saying with all of that? He was saying, if I don't keep the terms of this covenant, then you do to me what I've done to these animals. Those are the penalties, Every covenant has blessings and curses, and the curses are penalties, or the penalties are curses. Covenant curses the consequences of transgressing the terms of the covenant that you've made. That's why we're not to take them lightly. Just remember, they're there. Do we see the emperor vassal covenant in the, in the law of the Lord or in the temple covenants? Uh, I think. I, th- I think that Spencer answered in what we just read when he starts talking about emulating Christ and being willing to go through the same motions as he did. Our priesthood holders adopted the sons of Lehi or sons of Moses and Levi or something like that, right? Yeah. Sons of Moses and Aaron. Aaron. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes, uh, that's true. The priesthood was not originally you know, the sole privilege of the Levites. We were all to be a nation of kings and priests a chosen nation, a, pri- a, a, a holy priesthood. And uh, the Levites were only filling in, so to speak, for the rest of the tribes when they <clears throat> proved themselves to be valiant at the time the Israelites were fornicating with the daughters of Midian. And Moses made kind of a rallying call, which is also a type and shadow of the end time. And then the Levites, Moses was the, you know, of the tribe of Levi, so they felt more responsible, I guess, so the Lord chose them to be the priests and teachers of the people. But it was only a stopgap. So we become, through the priesthood, sons of Moses and Aaron, or Levites. And we'll end there. This concludes Lecture 2, Redemptive Suffering. Be sure to visit IsaiahExplain.com as well as IsaiahInstitute.com to learn more about Isaiah with Dr. Avraham Kiliati.